Yo, what's up, everybody? How you doing? It's time for another episode of the Politics and Punk Rock Podcast. I am Andrew for America. And today, my fellow Americans, I'm going to talk about democracy. What is it? In the previous uh, episode, I talked about Atlanticism, this idea of North America and Western Europe joining forces to combat the Soviet Union and their professed ideals were to protect liberal democracies. Why do we hold democracy in such high regard? Is it because it's a great example of equality? We're all equal participants in the society. Therefore, we should all have an equal say in what we want our government to do and how we want our country to function, right? So if that's going to be a good way for us to run our society, how are we going to correct for those people who have a say but aren't educated and don't have a constructive ability to participate in that society in the same way that somebody who is educated and whose ideas are constructive enough to be a person that the majority of us, for lack of a better word, (laughs) would look at this person and say, that is someone who is setting the example. That is somebody who is living their principles. And that's the way that all of us should view not only this gift that of equality and equal rights to be able to vote and to be represented. That's a gift, people. So... Do you think that you are disrespecting that gift? If you are not educated, if you are apathetic, if you just don't give a shit about politics? Remember when Ralph Nader said to you young people, you better start getting into politics before politics starts getting into you? And one example of politics getting into us that we are seeing right now is inflation. And that's what I want to touch on today, is what is it about uh, democracy that we cherish so much? And do we even cherish it? Because you would think that if you cherished your democracy, you would, by your own free will, participate, get knowledgeable, Know who your elected officials are. You can't just let some small group of people that you aren't aware of their intentions and you just go, oh, this is the person on the right, this is the person on the left. I think that traditionally my family and my ideals are on the left or on the right or whatever and that's the candidate I'm going to vote for. 
without any investigation, any knowledge about this person's history or their ideas or their desires, their aspirations, their goals. What kind of group are they a part of? What kind of people do they associate themselves with? Let me ask you, my fellow Americans, do you go that deep into thought and consideration and contemplation when you choose, when you compile your information to decide what candidate you are going to vote for. And guess what? What it, if let's just say that you don't even like the candidates and you want to run yourself. If you wanted to run for office, don't you think you should be knowledgeable and educated and aware and connected? So what is it about democracy that we love so much and we cherish so much when half of us, over half of us, probably over 75% of us couldn't give a flying fuck when election season comes around? And yet the next administration comes into office, whether it be local or state or federal, and you people continue to run your fucking mouths and bitch and whine and cry and complain. But did you get off your fat ass and get to the polls? Did you pick up some books and some literature so that you could do some research on the candidates provided for you to choose from in this oh-so-cherished democracy that you and I live in together? I just, I really want, this this type of stuff I really want to talk about more often. And I'm going to start getting into fundamentals of ideas and political ideas and philosophies here in the next coming episodes. Because a lot of you people, if you, if you already know this stuff, you've probably forgot. And like I've said before, we all need to refresh our course from time to time. But also, I'm going to do some of these upcoming shows that are more educational. Because I know a lot of you people never got this shit in high school. A lot of you people maybe got it in college, but you're probably too wasted and partying and trying to get laid to, you know, care that much, I guess. Some of you I know cared about school when you were there. I know a lot of people that were partying and being social a lot more. They were interested in that lifestyle of college a lot more than the person that gets up, you know, shows up to class on time with their notepad open, getting ready to take notes, engaged, aware, curious, desiring to acquire, uh, desiring to acquire knowledge and wisdom, and ready, willing, and able to receive a quote-unquote education, if you will. And... I don't know what we're going to do, people. But this cult of anti-intellectualism that is just running rampant in this, com- in this country, this apathy, this disinterest, this fear, and this dissonance that we all feel when we're confronted with the realities of this world, we got to get courageous people You got to face it. You can't run and hide. You can't run and hide. Pretty soon, 
Once these world planners reach their new world order, one world, if you will, there will be no place else to go. So do you want to be one of the people out in this world that were prepared for what's coming? Or do you want to be left there holding your dick, looking around like, oh God, I can't believe this is happening. How did I not know? A lot of you are going to be in for a very rude awakening here in the 21st century. And it's one of my goals here on the Politics and Punk Rock podcast to prevent that from happening. And like I've said, if I've said it once, I've said it a million times. If you find value in this or any of my previous podcasts, I highly recommend you share it to others that could benefit from a little knowledge, awareness, wisdom, education, etc. Today, people, we're going to talk about democracy in America. Let's define what democracy means first and foremost, shall we? Democracy, a system of government by the whole population, (laughs) allegedly, or all the eligible members of a state, typically through elected representatives. Synonyms are representative government, elective government, constitutional government, government by the people, majority rule, popular government, commonwealth, autonomous citizens participating in a republic, etc. A state governed by a democracy. Control of an organization or group by the majority of its members. The practice or principles of social equality. Okay? That's what a democracy is. That's the dictionary definition. Self-government, self-determination, self-ownership, independence. These are gifts that not everybody in this world gets to have and enjoy. But you here in America, you do. And countless people have come to this country from all parts of this world because they want to enjoy what you take for granted. Just look at the democracy and freedom campaigns that were happening in Hong Kong these past few years. People from Hong Kong in communist China, under communist Chinese control, waving American flags because they wanted freedom. They wanted self-determination. They did not want to be under the thumb of an all-powerful, omnipotent government. You want to be more like China, my fellow Americans? I know there's a lot of communist sympathizers in this country that would love nothing more than for the Enlightenment and Western ideals and the the ideas of constitutional republic, freedom, self-government, individual rights, yada, yada, et cetera, et cetera, to go away. And what we are moving towards 
in a society where democracy is, democracy is supposed to be the lay of the land, the way it is, the way we all participate. What happens if the majority of us start to not participate? What if the majority of us start to get afraid? A bunch of cowards who don't know anything and don't want to participate and feel like stupid idiots anytime people try to talk to them about real-life, adult, mature stuff. What happens is we move towards a form of government known as oligarchy. What's an oligarchy? Oligarchy is a small group of people having control of a country, organization, or institution. A small group of people. Not controlled by everybody involved. Controlled by a small group. And how, how did that happen? How do we move from control by sovereign individuals, connected, aware, knowledgeable, who participate in their society, how do we move towards that form of government, towards an oligarchy? Somehow, the rule of the many and the majority has transformed into the rule by a very small group of people. And that's a question I really want you guys to ask yourselves. Forget about all the conspiracy theories and all the you know, New World Order stuff I talk about on this show all the time. Just take it down to those nuts and bolts, those brass tacks, and think about it. What has happened in this country since its founding that has moved us from majority rule and mob rule to rule by a small group of wealthy people? The answers that you will find if you seek them should open your eyes quite, quite well. I'm going to take a break. And when I come back, we're going to talk about Democracy in America, the book written by French political philosopher Alexis de Tocqueville. And this written work, my fellow Americans, is an essential read for the educated, connected, mature, adult, aware, interested American. I'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, people, I'm going to start talking about a guy named Alexis de Tocqueville. And if you've never heard of Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, I'm going to introduce him. Uh, as a new character here on the show, Alexis Charles Henry Clarel Comte de Tocqueville. What a name. Uh, was a French aristocrat, diplomat, 
political scientist, political philosopher, and historian. He is best known for his works Democracy in America, appearing in two volumes in 1835 and then in 1840, and The Old Regime and the Revolution in uh, 1856. In both, he analyzed the improved living standards and social conditions of individuals as well as their relationship to the market and state in Western societies. Democracy in America was published after de Tocqueville's travels in the United States and is today considered an early work of sociology and political science. Tocqueville was active in French politics, first under the July monarchy and then during the Second Republic, which succeeded the February 1848 revolution. He retired from political life after Louis-Napoleon Bonaparte's uh, December 2nd, 1851 coup and thereafter began work on the old regime and the revolution. Tocqueville uh, argued the importance of the French Revolution. Uh, and he said that the, the importance of the French Revolution was to continue the process of modernizing and centralizing the French state, which had begun under King Louis the Fourteenth. He believed the failure of the revolution came from the inexperience of the deputies who were too wedded to abstract enlightenment ideals. Very interesting. Tocqueville was a classical liberal who advocated parliamentary government and was skeptical of the extremes of democracy. During his time in Parliament, he was a member of the center-left, but the complex and restless nature of his liberalism has led to contrasting interpretations and admirers across the political spectrum. Regarding his political position, Tocqueville wrote, The word left is the word I wanted to attach to my name so that it would remain attached to it forever and I find that to be quite interesting after the fall of the July monarchy during the French Revolution of 1848 Tocqueville was elected a member of the Constituent Assembly of 1848 where he became a member of the commission charged with the drafting of the new constitution of the Second Republic he defined bicameral, I'm sorry, he defended bicameralism, Jesus, and the election of the president of the republic by universal suffrage. That's a big sentence to unpack right there. As the countryside was thought to be more conservative than the laboring population of Paris, universal suffrage was conceived as a means to counteract the revolutionary spirit of Paris. During the Second Republic, Tocqueville sided with the party of order against 
the socialists. A few days after the February insurrection, hmm, he believed that a violent clash between the Parisian workers' population led by socialists agitating in favor of a democratic and social republic and the conservatives, which included the aristocracy and the rural population, was inescapable. As Tocqueville had foreseen, these social tensions eventually exploded during the June days of uprising, or the June days uprising of 1848, led by General Cavignac. Uh, Cavignac. The suppression was supported by Tocqueville, who advocated the regularization of the state of siege declared by Cavignac and other measures promoting suspension of the constitutional order. Between May and September, Tocqueville participated in the Constitutional Commission, which wrote the new constitution. His proposals underline the importance of his North American experience as his amendment about the president and his re-election. So, de Tocqueville came to the United States uh, and wrote a book called Democracy in America. And I wanted to introduce him because I'm getting ready to tell you some more interesting stuff about him. And I'm going to read you. I'm going to read you a quote from this book, where he describes uh, what he foresaw uh, the future of democracy in America bringing to America and to the American people. And I think you're going to find it. Quite interesting. Uh, here, let's read a little bit about democracy in America. In the book, Democracy in America, published in 1835, Tocqueville wrote of the new world and its burgeoning democratic order. Observing from the perspective of a detached social scientist... Tocqueville wrote of his travels through the United States in the early 19th century when the market revolution, Western expansion, and the Jacksonian democracy were radically transforming the fabric of American life. As emphasized in the introduction to Book One, the purpose of the work is somewhat beyond the American democracy itself which was rather an illustration to the philosophical claim that democracy is an effect of industrialization. Very important. He thought that democracy was an, an effect of industrialization. In a sense, Tocqueville anticipated Karl Marx's viewpoint that history is determined by development and changes of socioeconomic conditions, the so-called formations that are described by specific productive forces and relations of production. This focus in the philosophy of history justifies a certain ambiguity in using the word democracy and explains why Tocqueville even ignores the intents of the founding fathers of the United States regarding the American political system. And on that topic, here is a quote from uh, an author named Andronic Tangian, 
who wrote a book called Analytical Theory of Democracy 2020. And he comments on this. So take a listen to this. Quote, to pursue the central idea of his study, a democratic revolution caused by industrialization, as exemplified by America, Tocqueville persistently refers to democracy. This is, in fact, very different from what the founding fathers of the United States meant by democracy. Moreover, Tocqueville himself is not quite consistent in using in his using of the word democracy, applying it altern, uh, alternately to representative government, universal suffrage, or majority-based governance. Okay? And that's what, that's the bad rap that democracy gets, is a lot of people define democracy as majority-based governance. And the flaw uh, in the minds of most thinkers on this topic is that if 51% of the population can vote for something, that means that 49% of the population is essentially subjugated and living under a tyranny that they do not agree with. So, you know, this is why, it's, again, it's important to define our terms. When I was introdu uh, introducing uh, de Tocqueville earlier on, I mean, how many, I mean, you know, classic liberal, center left, he wants his name to be attached to the left, but then he goes on talking about republics and, you know, universal suffrage. And, you know, it's just very interesting. It's very interesting uh, how, and I've said this before in previous podcasts, how the, the meaning that we assign to words change over time. So that's why defining our terms is so important. I've been over it. Ad nauseum. According to political scientist Joshua Kaplan, one purpose of writing Democracy in America was to help the people of France get a better understanding of their position between a fading aristocratic order and an emerging democratic order and to help them sort out the confusion. Tocqueville saw democracy as an equation that balanced liberty and equality, concern for the individual as well as for the community. Don't you just love that, people? He's basically saying to, I mean, if he was alive today, he would probably say to the modern right and the modern left, what are you doing? You're taking very good concepts, very good conceptual words, and pitting them against each other. And you know, and you're, you're going to understand what I mean by that later on when I read to you the fate that he foresaw for democracy in America. We'll get to it, but let me just finish this part right here. Tocqueville was an ardent supporter of liberty. Do you think the modern left are ardent supporters of liberty in this day and age, my fellow Americans? 
I'm going to go ahead and disagree. But here's Tocqueville saying that he wants the word left attached to his name. Henceforth. And he was an ardent supporter of liberty. I have a passion for liberty, law, and respect for rights, he wrote. I am neither of the revolutionary party nor of the conservative. Liberty is my foremost passion. He wrote of political consequences of the social state of the Anglo-Americans by saying, But one also finds in the human heart a depraved taste for equality, which impels the weak to want to bring the strong down to their level, and which reduces men to preferring equality in servitude to inequality in freedom. You want peaceful slavery, or do you want dangerous freedom? The above is often misquoted as a slavery quote because of previous translations of the French text. The most recent translation by Arthur Goldhammer in 2004 translates the meaning to be as stated above. Examples of misquoted sources are numerous on the internet, such as Americans are so enamored of equality that they would rather be equal in slavery than unequal in freedom. And though that may be true... I still find that dichotomy to be a very useful uh, mental exercise. Can you merge the two without getting to the slavery and the dangerous parts? You know, as the pendulum swings, it always comes back to center. And I talk about that on this show all the time. You can't get too far left or too far right. You gotta bring it back to center. We gotta have constructive conversations where we define our terms so that we can all understand each other. Pragmatism, cooperation, having the best intentions of the whole in mind. And not just your fucking team, people. man. His view, de Tocqueville's view on government, reflects his belief in liberty and the need for individuals to be able to act freely while respecting others' rights. I call that tolerance and practicing Tolerance. And then he said of centralized government, he wrote that it excels in preventing, not doing. He's saying that centralized government doesn't do nothing. They just like to prevent things. Think about that concept for a second. Does the government, does centralized government ever really solve any problems? Are they ever proactive? 
or are they just reactive to what happens in society for whatever reason? And then they just, you know, enact policies that probably end up taking freedoms away. Tocqueville continues to comment on equality by saying, furthermore, when citizens are almost equal, almost equal, it becomes difficult for them to defend their independence against the aggressions of power. That's my point. As none of them is strong enough to fight alone with advantage. The, the only guarantee of liberty is for everyone to combine forces. But such a combination is not always in evidence. Tocqueville explicitly cites inequality as being incentive for the poor to become rich and notes that it is not often that two generations within a family maintain success and that it has inheritance laws that split and eventually break apart someone's estate that uh, cause a constant cycle of chum... I'm sorry... <laughs> <laughs> cause cause a constant cycle of churn between the poor and the rich, thereby over generations making the poor rich and the rich poor. Hmm, that's interesting. He cites protective laws in France at the time that protected an estate from being split apart among the heirs, thereby preserving wealth and preventing a churn of wealth such as was perceived by him in 1835 within the United States. And this part's pretty interesting. Tocqueville's main purpose was to analyze the functioning of political society and various forms of political associations, although he brought some reflections on civil society too. Uh, for Tocqueville, as for George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, and for Karl Marx, civil society was a sphere of private entrepreneurship and civilian affairs regulated by a civil code. As a critic of individualism, Tocqueville thought that through associating for mutual purpose, both in public and private, Americans are able to overcome selfish desires thus making both a self-conscious and active political society and a vibrant civil society according to political and civil laws of the state. According to political scientist Joshua Kaplan, Tocqueville did not originate the concept of individualism. Instead, he changed its meaning and saw it as a calm and considered feeling which deposes each citizen to isolate himself from the mass of his fellows and to withdraw into the circle of family and friends. Hmm. I don't know if that's still happening, but with this little society formed to his taste, he gladly leaves the greater society to look for itself. While Tocqueville saw egotism and selfishness as vices, he saw individualism as not a failure of feeling, but as a way of thinking about things which could have either positive consequences, such as a willingness to work together, or negative consequences, such as isolation 
and the individualism could be remedied by improved understanding. When individualism was a political, oh, I'm sorry, was a positive force and prompted people to work together for common purposes and seen as self-interest properly understood, quote unquote, then it helped to counterbalance the danger of the tyranny of the majority, since people could take control over their own lives without government aid. According to Kaplan, Americans have a difficult time accepting Tocqueville's criticism of the stifling intellectual effect of the omnipotence of the majority, and that Americans tend to deny that there is a problem in this regard. Hmm. Egotism springs from a blind instinct. Individualism from wrong-headed thinking rather than from depraved feelings. It originates as much from defects of intelligence as from the mistakes of the heart. Egoism blights the seeds of every virtue. Individualism at first dries up only the source of public virtue. In the longer term, it attacks and destroys all the others. <laughs> and then here, now we're getting to the part that I wanted to talk about. I know that's a long intro, and there's actually a lot of stuff I, I want to say about De Tocqueville, but I'm going to keep it shorter. I'm going to keep it short, so here we go. On democracy and what he called possible new forms of tyranny. Tocqueville warned that modern democracy may be adept at inventing new forms of tyranny because radical equality could lead to the materialism of an expanding bourgeoisie and to the selfishness of individualism. In such conditions, we might become so enamored with a relaxed love of present enjoyments, entertainments, that we lose interest in the future of our descendants and meekly allow ourselves to be led in ignorance by a despotic force all the more powerful because it does not resemble one, wrote James Wood of The New Yorker. Tocqueville worried that if despotism were to take root in a modern democracy, it would be much more dangerous, a much more dangerous version than the oppression under the Roman emperors or tyrants of the past who could only exert a pernicious influence on a small group of people at a time. In contrast, a despotism under a democracy could see a multitude of men uniformly alike, equal, constantly circling for petty pleasures, unaware of fellow citizens and subject to the will of a powerful state which exerted an immense protective power. Trading your liberty for security, right? Tocqueville compared a potentially despotic democratic government to a protective parent who wants to keep its citizens as children 
as perpetual children and which does not break men's wills, but rather guides it and presides over people in the same way as a shepherd looking after a flock of timid animals. Think about that. And... I mean, there's just so much to unpack from all this I'm reading right now. Like, I feel like when I talk about de Tocqueville and I really get into, you know, the chronology of events from his life, I mean, it's it's like it just keeps giving you more and more and more. And I highly recommend it. You guys go, first of all, pick up the book Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville. And then, you know, get on Wikipedia and read about the guy and read about his ideas and, I mean, this is the guy that really bridged the gap between left and right thinking from a historical perspective. That's why you guys got to gotta get into this stuff. You got to read. You got to learn. Otherwise, what are you doing? Here's that quote. And I want you to pay, atten- uh, pay attention to how he describes this possible future despotic tyranny that may come to this new democratic America in the future. After having thus taken each individual one by one into its powerful hands and having molded him as it pleases, the sovereign power extends its arms over the entire society. It covers the surface of society with a network of small, complicated, minute, and uniform rules which the most original minds and the most vigorous souls cannot break through to go beyond the crowd. It does not break wills, it softens them, bends them and directs them. It rarely forces action, but it constantly opposes your acting. It does not destroy. It prevents birth. It does not tyrannize. It hinders. It represses, enervates, extinguishes, and stupefies. And finally, it reduces each nation to being nothing more than a flock of timid and industrious animals of which the government is your shepherd. I have always believed that this sort of servitude, regulated, mild, and peaceful, of which I have just done the portrait, could be combined better than we imagine with some of the external forms of liberty, in that it would not be impossible for it to be established in the very shadow of the sovereignty of the people. What he is telling you is pretty much exactly what I've been telling you people about what the mainstream media has been doing 
about what the big, brave, new surveillance police state, totalitarian dictatorship, what that's going to bring to us. De Tocqueville wrote about this in the late 1800s, in the the mid to late 1800s. I guess not super late. He died in what, 50, 1854? Anyway. Okay, fine. The early to mid 1800s, whatever. People, there's nothing new in this world except the history you do not know. I could read about Alexis de Tocqueville for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And if you start down that rabbit hole, my fellow Americans, if you start down that quest, you're going to learn a lot. I highly recommend Alexis de Tocqueville's work. If you want to understand the concepts that I have been talking about, political and otherwise, on this podcast since episode one. And, you know, I want to, I'm into this right now, so I'm going to read a little bit more about de Tocqueville, okay? If you guys are getting bored, um, I don't know what, I don't know how you can't be fascinated with, with this stuff. This is, this is the nuts and bolts of how we're going to fix this fucking place, people. Alexis de Tocqueville's democracy in America is a necessity for the earnest American thinker who wants to do good and wants to cooperate and wants to work together with his fellow, uh, his or her fellow citizens in order to solve the problems in their society. And I mean, he, he basically foresaw the fears of democracy and the fears of rampant individualism, the loss of the sense of community, the loss of the social responsibility to participate. And, you know, I always say the missing ingredient or the the anomaly, the fly in the ointment is human nature. Human beings will never act perfectly. We will always make mistakes. We will also uh, always misunderstand words. And we'll get these ideas in our head that come from just this, you know, historical game of telephone. And that's how words, the meaning that we assign to words changes over time. Because people use them when they don't really know what they're talking about or... They just have a different definition of that word. The meaning that we assign to words matters. And I'm going to keep repeating it on the show because I really feel like it's that important. You have to know what these words mean. You have to know what democracy means. You have to know what a republic is. You have to know what freedom is. You have to know where your rights come from. Right? If you don't know, what are you doing? How would you know if the amazing uh, framework for, you know, allegedly assuming, you know, a type of society that all of us want to live in together, if you don't even know how, how it's made possible, how are you participating? How are you offering anything? You're just running away, isolating. Like de Tocqueville says, 
He fears that people will retreat into isolation and not participate anymore, basically. Here, let's read a little bit about uh, de Tocqueville's thoughts on the American social contract. Tocqueville's penetrating analysis sought to understand the peculiar nature of American political life. In describing the American, he agreed with thinkers such as Aristotle and Montesquieu that the balance of property determined the balance of political power. But his conclusions after that differed radically from those of his predecessors. Tocqueville tried to understand why the United States was so different from Europe in the last throes of aristocracy. In contrast to the aristocratic ethic, the United States was a society where hard work and money-making was the dominant ethic, where the common man enjoyed a level of dignity, dignity, which was unprecedented, where commoners never deferred to elites, never deferred to elites, commoners, who never deferred to elites, and where what he described as crass individualism and market capitalism had taken root to an extraordinary degree. And that makes me think of, I forget who said the quote, but there is nothing more powerful in this world than an idea whose time has come. Individual sovereignty, religious freedom, those were ideas whose time had come. And that's why those ideas spread like wildfire across the New West, across the colonies. Your future, your lot in life, your ability to become successful and raise families and to live, you know, maybe even lavishly eventually all was rooted in this idea that you do not have to defer to the aristocratic elites you are responsible for your lot in life now you are responsible you have been given free a new freedom an unprecedented freedom and that is going to be inherently dangerous. You're going to make mistakes, but you're going to learn. Trial and error. Repetition. Scientific method. Enlightenment principles. That was the formula. That was how you became successful. These people had the opportunity to build a new world, a better world for everyone. And they, you know, these, these, de Tocqueville specifically, but a lot of the thinkers of this time, they developed all these amazing ideas and and beliefs and, um, you know, blueprints for how to run a society because they had the freedom to do so. There wasn't a monopoly on force. There wasn't a monopoly on the means of production anymore. Well, I mean, there were, I mean, there was old money that was being invested in the new world. So 
you know, a new era, uh, a new aristocracy was being formed in the colonies, obviously. And that is obviously, you know, the fear that de Tocqueville co uh, comments on here about, you know, this um, unchecked making of money and, and uh, you know, radical libertarianism, I guess you could, uh, a lot of the, the left wing would call, you know, the problem with capitalism and uh, libertarianism was this, you know, you know, screw the externalities. Who, who, who cares who we hurt in our um, progression to more money and more, um, you know, enterprise, whatever. Checks and balances. You know, there's got to be, you know, some type of, of judicial way for the common people to have their um, grievances redressed, right? And it's kind of hard to do when the rich and the powerful bourgeoisie, this new bourgeoisie, the new aristocrats, fix the game, invest in the system, take it over. Infiltrate, overcome, and acquire, I think is the catchy phrase. Actually, I heard the guys on the Wicked Planet talking about this about how slowly but surely, over time, the rich and powerful are going to get in to monopolizing situations. And that's what de Tocqueville feared. Interesting stuff, don't you think? Very important. De Tocqueville writes, among a democratic people where there is no hereditary wealth, every man works to earn a living. Labor is held in honor. The prejudice is not against, but in its favor. Tocqueville asserted that the values that had triumphed in the North and were present in the South had begun to suffocate old world ethics and social arrangements. Legislatures abolished uh, primogeniture, primogeniture and entails, whatever that means, resulting in more widely distributed land holdings. Oh, okay, so that has to do with property rights. Uh, and who owned what and how much of things did they own? How much land holdings did they have, right? Uh, this was a uh, contrast to the general aristocratic pattern in which only the eldest child, usually a man, inherited the estate which had the effect of keeping large estates intact from generation to generation. So that was weaker in the United States. Anybody had the opportunity to bust their ass and create an empire for themselves. And some people got there first and then started colluding and conspiring to prevent others from becoming their competition. It's human nature, people. Doesn't matter if you're a libertarian, doesn't matter if you're a socialist, doesn't matter what you think is the best way and the best form of government and the best way to run our society, doesn't matter. The common anomaly, the constant variable, my fellow Americans, is human nature. In contrast, landed elites in the United States were less likely to pass on fortunes pass on fortunes to a single child by the action of primogeniture, which meant that as time went by, large estates became broken up within a few generations, which in turn made the children more equal 
overall. See, the left only wants you to get so rich and powerful, people. And, you know, I would tend to agree with that idea. Balance. We need balance. Just like I say, you can't get too far left and too far right. We shouldn't let people get far too rich or far too poor, right? If you have the best intentions of the whole in mind when you're making your decisions and you're trying to solve problems, don't you think you should want to make life better for everyone? But not so good for a few that so many of the many had to live in basically squalor and poverty and, and with, with no ability to, partic- to participate in the society, to be locked out of participation in the society because of how the uh, aristocratic collusion and, and conspiring over the years, slowly but surely, small usurpations, step by step, piece by piece, infiltrate, overcome and acquire. And that's what the conspiratorial big club ideas and thoughts that I talk about on this podcast, that's what they're all about. Is how big are this, you know, how big is this new bourgeoisie, this new American aristocracy? How big are they going to get people? It looks like that small group of aristocrats throughout this world, in every country, everywhere. It seems like we are just at that point in history now, in the, in the modern era, in the 21st century, to where we are moving towards the world planners. And I can't remember who uh, talked about this. I brought it up in a previous episode, but something, uh, maybe it was Sapien's book by Yuval Harari, um, about how... The 20th century was the century of uh, democracy and the rule of law and legislatures and sovereign states. Um, But the 21st century is going to be moving towards one world, towards this new world order, towards a world where we have a small group of world planners and international bankers that make all of the decisions for the common people for the proletariat, for the plebs, for the proles, you and me, corporate wage slaves to this new group of feudal lords, if you will. This stuff is very important, people. You gotta get into Alexis de Tocqueville's work. As Tocqueville understood it, This rapidly uh, democratizing society had a population devoted to middling values, which wanted to amass uh, wealth and value through hard work, uh, through hard work and vast fortunes, the acquiring and creation of vast fortunes. In Tocqueville's mind, this explained why the United States was so different from Europe. uh, In Europe, he claimed nobody cared about making money. The lower classes had no hope of gaining more than minimal wealth, while the upper classes found it crass, vulgar, or unbecoming of their sort to care about something as unseemly as money. <laughs> That's easy for them to say when you have all the money. 
And many were virtually guaranteed wealth and took it for granted, of course. See, there it is. Again, human nature, people. These people take their lot in life for granted. If you, you know, make right around, give or take, six figures a year, or let's just say you make like 70K a year, you're in a pretty wealthy class of people, you know, from a worldly perspective. Remember when I talked about the aristocrats never see themselves as aristocrats, they always see themselves as middle class? I mean, what a joke. It's because they don't, you know, some people don't want to feel bad for, ha for having so much, I guess, is what I would assume. I've never had anything, so I don't know. But if I did have a bunch of stuff, you know, I, I, maybe there's a chance that I would feel not bad about it, but I wouldn't be throwing it in people's faces. And I would probably say to myself, it's sad that I have so much more than others. And, either you know, if you really felt that way, if you really had a conscience, quote unquote, about it, I guess, you might be... Um, motivated to give away as much as you can or as much as you could. Not everybody thinks that way, though. Not everybody feels that way. Some people just want more, 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 right? At the same time, in the United States, workers would see people fashioned in exquisite attire and merely proclaim that through hard work, they too would soon possess the fortune necessary to enjoy such luxuries. And that's that, you know, that's that uh, <laughs> fairy tale. Some would say the American dream, right? Despite maintaining that uh, the balance of property determined the balance of power, Tocqueville argued that as the United States showed, equitable property holdings did not ensure the rule of the best men. Equitable property holdings did not ensure the rule of the best men. In fact, it did quite the opposite, as the widespread, relatively equitable property ownership which distinguished the United States and determined its mores and values also explained why the United States masses held elites in such contempt. So for all you right-wing people out there, sometimes you got to ask yourself, and, and I challenge you to, to go down this thought process and this thought ex, uh, experiment. How rich should people be getting? How much money and power and influence should a small group of people be allowed to enjoy in a society that prides itself on you work hard, you play the game and you too can achieve and become successful and build an uh, empire of your own. You know what I'm saying? There's got to be, you gotta, we got to draw the line somewhere. And, and I would venture a guess that that's what some of the more reasonable left-wing people that are out there, I think they, they're saying the same thing. Like, does, are corporations really people? Do we really need this big giant uh, conglomerate of business to be destroying the planet and 
you know, not making life better for the general population? At what point do you revolt and say, look, if you guys aren't going to take the rest of us into consideration, then we're just going to force you to. And that's what I think Marxist revolution is all about. And I can't completely hate on that. Because there's got to be a breaking point, people. There's got to be a point where, where reason and logic have failed then you might have to go vigilante and take matters into your into your own hands. You know, if you want to make an omelet, you got to break a few eggs, right? <laughs> and so you know, and again, there's there's people in this world that are willing to go through with the action that so 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 many of us think about in you know in the theory. Theory is important, but action is also important. Got to participate, people. We've got to get involved. Or else we're in trouble. Beyond the eradication of old world aristocracy, ordinary Americans also refuse to defer to those possessing, as Tocqueville put it, superior talent and intelligence. And these natural elites could not enjoy much share in political power as a result. That sounds like the cult of anti-intellectualism, Isaac Asimov, to me. Ordinary Americans enjoyed too much power and claimed too great a voice in the public sphere to defer to intellectual superiors. So that means you're too rich and powerful to care what the smartest amongst you have to say and are recommending for the betterment of us all and for the protection of our world. This culture promoted a relatively pronounced equality, Tocqueville argued. But the same mores and opinions that ensured such equality also promoted mediocrity. Those who possessed true virtue and talent were left with limited choices. Tocqueville said that those with the most education and intelligence were left with two choices— They could join limited intellectual circles to explore the weighty and complex problems facing society, or they could use their superior talents to amass vast fortunes in the private sector. And that's what I think most smart people do. Nobody, there's there's no, there's no appetite for doing the work of solving the problems. So people say, screw society, I'm just going to go help myself. That's what's happened in this country, people. We have become mediocre. The average person has been so propagandized and just beaten down by the police state and manipulated by the media and the surveillance Bullshit. That, you know, we're in a state of Stockholm Syndrome. Meanwhile, the Dunning-Kruger effect is alive and well. Everybody thinks they're better, smarter, faster. But really, they're just mediocre. De Tocqueville wrote that he did not know of any country where there was less independence of mind and true freedom of discussion than in America. 
Think about that. He wrote that he did not know of any other country where there was less independence of the mind and true freedom of discussion. That means that we could all be working together and talking and lively debating the issues of the day, the critical issues of the day. But for some reason, we didn't have a lot of independence of mind. People didn't seek out information. People weren't being told what they needed to know. And that trend has continued to this very moment. De Tocqueville blamed the omnipotence of majority rule, or mob rule as I like to call it, as a chief factor in stifling thinking. And that's my biggest criticism of democracy, people, is it stifles thinking. The majority has enclosed thought within a formidable fence. A writer is free inside that area, but woe to the man who goes beyond it. Not that he stands in fear of an inquisition, but he must face all kinds of unpleasantness in everyday persecution. Because the public sucks. And there's always someone who's willing to criticize you, and the people that do that are never doing more than you. It's like they're afraid of how good you are and how smart you are. And how confident you are in your abilities to achieve any goal that you want to set your mind to. Or any problem you want to solve. Why, why, do we, why do we rip people down that are trying to do good work? Why don't we celebrate them? Why don't we strive to be more like them? Ugh. People, go pick up the book, Democracy in America. Go read anything you can possibly find about the ideas of Alexis de Tocqueville. You are going to become a better, smarter, more worldly, more aware, more engaged citizen of this country if you do. And I really hope that you do. People, I think it's time. Once again, here on the Politics and Punk Rock podcast, to play some punk rock. It's time to play some punk rock. And today I have a song that themes up perfectly. And I realized when I was thinking about what song I wanted to play on the show today that I hadn't read any lyrics in a long time. So today I'm going to read you these lyrics to a song I wrote back in the day. Uh, this is off my old band Nonprofits 2006 demo. I'm going to fe- I'm going to start featuring a few more songs from my old band nonprofit starting today just to get through it. Uh, I already finished the Catalyst EP. You guys have heard all those tracks. But I uh, got about four more songs, I think. Three or four more songs from my old band uh nonprofit off of our demo and today I'm going to play a song called Stand Still. And the song is about blockheaded 
numbskull, close-minded people. And here we go. I'm just going to get it going. So you'll never get involved or take a side. He's imitating their beliefs. It saves him time. He argues not for knowledge. It is only for show. Convincing is your goal. You're so set in what you know. What is it you think you have to hide? It's like the blind leading the blind when you're telling a story. If you would just open up your head and show me you, not mirrors, instead. If you think that what you think cannot be wrong, you won't understand how the thoughts you have are drawn. You have your thoughts so tremendous, but based on what you know. Ideas in concrete dry. Walls don't budge until they break. What is it you think you have to hide? It's like the blind leading the blind when you're telling a story. If you would just open up your head and show me you, not mirrors instead. All you want to do is argue. Why listen? Don't want to hear the other side. I know you've been confirming what you know without the need to grow. It's easier to nod in agreement than to justify your stance against dissent. I don't think I've ever seen you being true. Because I haven't done half the things you do. And then Neil in the background uh, from my old band nonprofit singing, Here today, gone tomorrow. <laughs> now I see where your allegiance lays. Here today, gone tomorrow. It's my fault. It's not my fault. You're just that way. <laughs> he argues not for knowledge. It is only for show. Convincing is your goal. You're so set in what you know. Ladies and gentlemen, this song is called Stand Still. And that's what happens when thought is distinguished in favor of a rock-hard, close-minded, egomaniac, holier-than-thou, better-than-everybody-else. I'm so perfect and I know everything, so I never need to learn or grow what more is there to learn when you already know everything, right? And your mind ends up at this holding pattern, this stagnant place. Your thought is at a standstill. And this song that me and Neil wrote back in the day is dedicated to all of you. Ladies and gentlemen, my old band nonprofit with the song Stand still.
never get involved and take a side When you're wrong, it's so degrading He's imitating our beliefs, it saves him time His credibility is fading He argues not for knowledge, it is only for sure Convincing is your goal, so set in what you know What is it? You think you have to hide like the blind leading the blind When you're telling a story the show for today. Go to the website, politicsandpunkrockpodcast.com, buy a t-shirt, or donate to the show. Send me an email, andrewforamerica1984 at gmail.com. Tell me your thoughts, feelings, ideas, questions, comments, or concerns. Check me out on Rumble, Gab, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. And people, maybe, just maybe try to be better tomorrow than you were today. I love you guys so much. Thank you so much for listening. 
Good night. We'll see you next time. This has been episode 88 of the Politics Podcast. Entitled Democracy in America.